In the treatment of serious diseases, therapeutic efficiency is all too often missing from the patient experience. Well, there's a flurry of activity among emerging biopharmas to develop precision medicine that's tailored to match a specific patient's genotype and clinical phenotype. The current standard in diseases like cancer and coronavirus is far more akin to trial and error, albeit educated trial and error. There's a box full of standard tools, and clinicians apply those tools in some strategic order until we're in hope of finding the one that does the job. That takes time, and as we know, time isn't something cancer patients take lightly, and as we've learned, neither do COVID patients. Dr. Pranand Sarma wants to help clinicians improve the odds that they'll choose the right tool on the first try. Immunome, the company he's served as president and CEO since 2019, is a developer of what I would describe as select antibodies. Select in that the company's discovery platform identifies novel therapeutic antibodies and their antigen targets by leveraging highly educated memory B cells from patients who have learned to fight off their disease. It's kind of like picking an all-star team of players who have been in the game and who are well-trained to win. I'm Matt Piller, and on today's episode of the Business of Biotech, I'm talking with Dr. Sarma about all-star antibodies, how they're discovered, how they're developed, and how they're applied in cancer and coronavirus. Dr. Sarma, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you talking about our company and our platform. Um, Again, very glad to be here. Uh, I think your opening and setup is is perfect. and how we at Immunome start thinking about drug discovery uh, from a completely outside of the box approach. Um, I mean, historically, we have all used informatics or some other tools to say, hey, this target should be interesting for this disease. And then we go about validating the target. Mm-hmm. We at Immunome are taking a completely different approach. I think many of us fully understand now the impact of checkpoint inhibitors like the Keytruda's and the, and the Abdivas of the world, how they fundamentally changed uh, cancer treatment. I think underlying all of this is the fact that human immune system does a pretty darn good job of mm-hmm. fighting the disease, better engineering than any of us can do outside of the body. The key is, how do you access that? And that's where our journey begins because the first step in our discovery process is the patient. So I'll try to sort of give you a very high-level overview of what we're trying to do is, just like there is economic disparity, there is immunological disparity. Some people are highly responsive immunologically, and some others are not. Okay, just like some people have a lot of money and some of, some of them don't. It's the same story with immunology. Yeah. Two people get exposed to COVID. One of them have a couple of sneezes and they're fine, and the other one ends up on a ventilator. Why mm. is that? So what we are trying to really understand is the people who have successfully you know, fight a disease, what are they doing differently? What is their immune system doing differently that we can use then to help those people who can't? Yeah. Uh, those immune systems cannot do that. So I think fundamental to that is accessing the information. So the reason why we pick memory B cells specifically, which is the most educated component of the human immune system is when there is a threat to the body, the immune system throws a lot of stuff at it. We call it throwing a spaghetti against the wall. Mm -hmm. Okay, the immune system tries different things, but it is only the spaghetti that sticks to the wall that is important. Okay, 
those are the memory cells. So once the body knows that something has worked, it commits that information to memory. And these memory cells are then resident in the body. Should that threat happen to come again, they very rapidly expand and create a whole bunch of these antibodies to fight out the disease. We specifically look for those memory B cells. And in case of cancer, for example, we even look them in areas where you think they are present, such as the draining lymph nodes, the tumor tissue itself, where the surveillance is actually happening and going on. So yeah. our technology accesses those memory B cells. And then you ask me, well, anybody could do that. What do we do that is different is, the trick then comes in is taking the memory B cells out of the human body and make them live outside for a long period of time. We use our hybridoma platform to do that where that specific memory B cell, and memory B cells make one antibody and one antibody only. So each memory B cell only makes one antibody because mm -hmm. it is so specialized to make that antibody only. We now make those memory B cells, several thousands of them from each patient, produce enough quantities of these antibodies that we can test. What is this antibody looking at? Why was it made? To go after what target? And then we have industrialized our scaling platform, screening platform to come up and identify these needles in haystack where specific antibodies directed at specific cancers or COVID in case of COVID spike antibodies to come up with those antibodies that are highly differentiated that the body itself has engineered and then we put them into drug development process. So mm -hmm. to in a nutshell, our discovery is we do not have a hypothesis as to which target is important. We let the human immune system drive us to where we need to go. Yeah. And those are the all-star cast that we pick because the body has engineered them for us. We have the technologies and the tools to access them. So that's in a nutshell what we do. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that you shared that in a nutshell and that it al aligns at least at least somewhat uh, aligns with uh, the, you know, the, the analogy I made, I guess, from the outset. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I want to dig, I want to dig into, uh, into some more of that and how it applies specifically to your coronavirus program and get an update on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but before we, before we go any deeper on, on that, I want to um, just offer up some information on you to the audience uh, mm -hmm. before, before we get too much further. I want to get to know you a little bit better. So um so you uh, you joined Immunome was was it 2019? Is that, mm -hmm. is that right? Yeah. yeah. So prior to that, uh, you you were you you held your first presidential and, and CEO role with uh, Taras Biomedical, uh, where you served in that capacity for I think nearly nine years, leading up to the company's acquisition by Johnson and Johnson also in 2019. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that experience. I mean, it's a, you know, that's a good position to be in, I think, at least the way it looks on paper coming out of uh, a, a, an acquisition by J and J uh, and then kind of taking your picket where you want to go next. Uh, how'd you end up leading that company and, and, and how did that experience sort of help you prepare for your position here at Immuno? Yeah. So, you know, my background, um, I'm a pharmacist by training, but have a lot of experience in what I call as platform technologies where, you are trying to sort of, you know, find the right intersection between a technology and a therapeutic application. That's what I do. I think I'm not completely, you know, driven by one specific therapeutic area. As a matter of fact, my training is therapeutic agnostic. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting to, to Taris Biomedical uh, is that they had a delivery system that can continuously deliver medication to the bladder. 
Um, as you know, you know, bladder therapeutics in general, urology is a very procedure-driven industry, uh, a therapeutic area. Yeah. Uh, very, very few drugs actually were developed in the context of bladder diseases, except for some prostate drugs and erectile dysfunction. But the diseases of the bladder, like bladder cancer, have been primarily untreated for a very, very long time. So when this technology came in front of me, where it came out of you know Bob Langer and, and uh, Michael Seema at MIT, my goal was really to say, if I can own an organ, so to speak, and then you have the ability to really treat the disease locally by sparing all the other organs and maintaining the toxicity very, very low. The problem with bladder is less than 2% of the cardiac output goes to the bladder. Mm-hmm. So if you give a, a drug, very little actually gets into where it needs to go. So what attracted me to that is, first of all, developing therapeutics that are very safe and could be extremely effective. Then as I got into that, I think what, um, again, the reason why I told you know, platforms are important to me is once we started understanding the bladder as an organ, mm-hmm. several things sort of came into picture is that many people think bladder is something that holds urine, you know but it is an extremely intelligent organ because it's, it's like any other organ with a very high level of sophistication. Long story short, what we realized is that there are tremendous opportunities to treat these patients using local delivery. And the first program we went after is interstitial cystitis is an extremely painful bladder condition. Successfully by taking existing drugs, we were able to show a significant benefit in that population and that product got acquired by Allergan well before the company was sold to J&J. Mm. That first product was actually, I sold it to you know Allergan in 2015. That's when we realized that it's like peeling the onion. There are so many diseases in the bladder. We you know, think about overactive bladder, for example, neurogenic bladder, bladder cancer. So we kept the technology and then I then focused the company on bladder cancer and overactive bladder two very, very high unmet medical need areas. And once we have the bladder cancer program show significant progress, that's when you know Johnson & Johnson, the company realized the value in mm-hmm. what they can do to bring it to the patients. And I'm glad even as of um, uh, their, you know, their official and uh, public updates, J&J still considered this as one of their key programs going forward. And right now I think it is in phase three. So I'm hoping that that technology we started several years ago will benefit the patients and we are very eagerly waiting for that to happen. So that acquisition sort of gave me the validation that platform for the sake of platform is not going to create any value. Mm -hmm. We really have to drive it down to where it helps the patients. So the story at Taris really is taking known drugs with a different technology. The first product for Allergan was lidocaine. We all know lidocaine for 70 years and who would have thought you can repurpose that for something. And the second program, but bladder cancer was gemcitabine, something that has been known for 45 years. Mm-hmm. We were still able to revolutionize existing therapies in the context of local treatment. That's where I see the power of a platform is. Once you know, and once you figure out what to do, the applications can be made. Yeah. But it's that first step that was really tough. So my overall experience in Paris really helped me to think about multiplicity of opportunities once we get a platform. And that's the reason why I came to Immunome because we all talked about what the T cells can do and how much we can you know, help them in, in the context of cancer, but we are missing one half of the coin. 
the B cells actually do all the work in terms of setting up the T cells to come in. And I think as an industry, we haven't fully exploited that. Yeah. Right. That's why I came to Immunome because I think there is still a large ground to be covered in both cancer and in infectious disease. And the goal here is to take advantage of that. And if we can do it successfully, I believe there will be multiple opportunities. Yeah. What uh, what what was the the status of in, Immunome when you joined? When was Immunome founded? Had it, had oh, it been around for a while <laughs> Immun- before you came on board. Yeah. So Immunome actually started. Uh, by our scientific founder Scott Desain way back in you know uh, in, in 2009 or 2010 if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. and that has been sort of in the you know very uh, academic setting for a long period of time, until you know Broadband Capital the the lead investors came in in 2016 I believe and started putting some real money behind the platform. So when I joined Immunome, it was a platform that had potential. Uh, in cancer, but I think what was sort of uh, missing at that point is the focus. What are we going to go after? And how do you validate this technology that it has relevance in a therapeutic setting? And again, coming back to the discussion I had on Taurus. So two things we have done differently is that, you know, there is evidence of this technology and B cells being useful in infectious disease. Our scientific founder has published that work in polio for example. Mm-hmm. When COVID came on board, we really saw that the value of this platform is in identifying unique antibodies that can potentially bind to structures of the virus that don't change. Because one thing that we knew very early on, you know, we are not the only ones, obviously, is that this virus is going to mutate. It's like any other coronavirus. So right. our thinking was really not the first generation antibodies, but how would the disease look like two years from now? So what kind of an antibody and antibody cocktail, again, coming back to your all-star test, you think we would need to really address the mutational drift and prevent and find a way to continue to neutralize the virus was the focus from day one, okay? That's how we you know, pitched it to the government. Uh, luckily, you know, we got a, a $17.6 million grant from the Department of Defense. Mm. They saw the value in this technology. We are thankful to them. And we've since been executing and again, successfully, now we have filed an IND and the IND is cleared, we're into the clinic. One thing that is very humbling to me is that our approach panned out. Uh, as we have been publicly disclosing, all the alphabet <laughs> that have evolved so far, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, omicrons, our yeah. antibody cocktail continue to you know, bind and be effective. So we are really looking forward to you know, the clinical data we'll be reporting later on in the year. Uh, but the fundamental thesis is holding up uh, yeah. that we think that this mutational drift needs all kinds of uh, interventions. But I think antibodies, I believe, will remain to be one of the key elements in bringing this disease down, especially for patients who uh, are unable to take advantage of vaccines, like immunocompromised patients, for example. They do not elicit strong immune response. How do you protect them? Some of these you know, oral agents may or may not fully be uh, suitable for them or may or may not work unless you take it in the first three to five days. Antibodies are tried and tested uh, reagents that are very reasonably safe because they're isolated from humans and we have known about monocles. But I think cocktail I want to emphasize. I don't think that we believe at least a single antibody is going to do the trick. Because yeah. the body doesn't make one antibody against the virus. It makes several antibodies. And there is a reason why it does that. So coming back to your analogy of all-star cast, you know, we at least need three or four strong players 
to fight <laughs> against the virus, not just one. Because the virus can easily go around uh, one antibody. So that's why we believe in cocktail. We believe in cocktail isolated from humans is the right way to go after this uh, virus. Yeah. What do you uh, what do you anticipate in terms of, um, I guess, the the ongoing opportunity? You know, I, I, I guess I hesitate to use the word market opportunity, but patient, patient population slash market opportunity uh, as, as the virus, uh, the pandemic itself, uh, you know, evolves, turns endemic. Uh, do you anticipate that uh, there's still going to be a, you know, a, a, a sizable market for, for players like, like, like yours? Yeah, absolutely. I, I believe so. Uh, the reason for that is we all know about flu. Right. Mm-hmm. Even with years and years of, you know, influenza, uh, we still lose, I think, eight to 10,000 people every year. Uh, the bottom line is this virus is more uh, virulent than the flu virus, at least in its current configuration. And I believe that even if as it becomes endemic, uh, we have to all ask the question, what does endemic actually mean in this case? But there will be high risk populations that will not be able to fight off this disease, even in the wake of vaccines that themselves have to be potentially you know, uh, re-engineered. So I think even as it becomes endemic with the drift in the mutations that are still continuing, there is a real need for a foreseeable future for a therapeutic on an ongoing basis, even when it becomes endemic. Two reasons. One is until the virus is completely neutralized, I think new variants are going to come. We are seeing that and I don't think it's going to go away. The question is, at some point, a reasonable number of patients, I think, are going to be naturally infected or vaccinated. But the people who are at risk will continue to be at risk. And that population is the one that we are most worried about. Um, Because the others may get sick, but they may not get really severely ill or hopefully not die. But that's the population that I think therapeutics, where we operate, we go after. We are not going after people who are necessarily very, very young and very healthy and can shake off the disease on their own. Right? Mm-hmm. That's not the people that you worry about. Right. You worry about the vulnerable people. And for there, the therapeutic efficacy matters. Okay? They need to get out of the hospital as quickly as possible. I think that's where our focus is. And that population, unfortunately, I think is going to continue to be vulnerable for foreseeable future. Okay. And that's really what we're going after. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you know, you, you did a good job sort of framing up the, the theoretical, the philosophical approach right around this, this antibody cocktail in, in COVID. Um, so let's, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about what, what that means from a manufacturing standpoint is, is what you're doing difficult. I mean, it's theoretically it's sound, it's a, you know, in a way mimics the way that, uh, you know, we naturally produce antibodies. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so it, very quickly. Is, yeah. Is it yeah. tough to reproduce? Right. Yeah. No. So I think one thing I want to clarify here is that we isolate the antibodies in their native form from the memory B cells using our hybridoma platform technology. Mm-hmm. Once we know what the antibodies are that we are going to be using in the clinic, we immediately convert them into a recombinant format. So all of our manufacturing is using recombinant technology, which is pretty standard, like in the CHO cells, for example, expression. They all have very high expression levels. So from a manufacturing standpoint, it is like any other antibodies. So we are not different from, you know, tens and hundreds of antibodies that are out there in development and commercial. So we are not at any uh, disadvantage or anything from a manufacturing standpoint. The beauty here is 
The discovery portion of it is done using the antibodies produced by the body in a specific format. But once we flip it into development, we manufacture using recombinant techniques. So that's the reason why I think from a manufacturing standpoint, we don't think there should be any huge issue. Second, the cocktail that we choose is actually based on synergy between three and among three antibodies. In other words, one plus one plus one is more than three. Okay. So sometimes we get the question because you got three antibodies in a cocktail, is the dose going to be very high, et cetera, et cetera. On a milligram by milligram basis, actually, I don't think our doses are going to be any different or any more than anybody else because where we really draw the uh, advantage is in the synergy. So you don't, when you combine all three of them, you require much less than what any one of them would have been. So yeah. from that standpoint, also, I know the next question from you may have been cost of goods or whatever. That's kind of where on a milligram basis, one, we use the same standard manufacturing and two, we believe because of the synergy, the doses are not going to be any different from other key players in the space. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, tell me a little bit about, if if you can, so earlier this year, you guys had a, a little bit of a news splash around uh, the FDA throwing a mm -hmm. clinical hold uh, on mm -hmm. your phase 1B clinical trial. Um Seeking more information, as I understand it, on your preparation and administration of clinical test sites. So, just tell us about that. How did how did that come around? Come around and uh, you know, yeah, it's or... it's pretty standard. I mean, it's, I think agency has rightly they should, you know, we wanted to make sure. I think part of the issue is related to compounding at the site, like mm -hmm. when you have three antibodies that you are combining them and then you are then infusing them. I think part of things are related to the you know controls and stuff like that and how you do it. Yeah. They needed additional information on how we do it and are we doing that. I think that's really where the hold was. And I think if you look at any of the antibody cocktails that are out there in the market, if you look at their compounding information sheet, it runs three pages long. Yeah. So the agency, whenever there is a you know extemporaneous dispensing happening, tend to you know be rightfully so uh, very cautious about it. I think some of the questions on the hold are related to that, which we have provided and they cleared us to move forward. So I I don't think it was anything related to the safety of the product at all. It's yeah. much more to do with actually the mechanics and making sure that the product's coming out on the other end, but the patient is safe. So I think we've gone through that already. So yeah. we're actively yeah, recruiting right now. Sure. It's understandable. It's understandable. Right question to ask. And we had the answers. And so we gave the answers. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations like mRNA and cell and gene therapies into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash emerging biotech. Yeah, well, that's perfect. And I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's pretty standard, standard practice. These things are not, not uncommon. I certainly don't mean to draw light to it in that respect, but one of the things I like to do on this podcast is give, uh, give uh, industry hands, industry vet, veteran hands like you an opportunity to share with, uh, you know, perhaps first time leaders of, of biopharma companies some advice. And I, I'd like to ask for, you know, your, your advice in a situation like that, where, you know, 
you've maybe you're seeing a clinical hold for the first time and everybody, you know, regardless of the fact that it's common procedure and pretty standard happens all the time, you know, there might be a little bit of like, Oh man, you know, didn't see that coming. What kind of advice would you give the, uh, you know, the, the younger you that's seeing that for the first time in dealing with it? Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, whether, you know, there are situations where companies voluntarily put themselves on hold, right? even before the FDA gets there. Right? Yeah. So to me, you know, the patient safety is first and foremost, uh, the most important thing that all of us should 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 uh, bear in mind. And sometimes there are elements in the overall the scheme of uh, assessment of such risk. Um, you know, there may be, you know, oftentimes some differences of opinion, even amongst two people let alone the company and the agency. And then, but the agency rightfully has the obligation to ensure safety. And it happens from time to time that they may have looked at certain things that we may have missed, you know, it is entirely possible. And we try our best not to do that, but it happens sometimes. And in many cases, in my experience, these things happen. And I think we we end up, you know, resolving it uh, with the right amount of data. But I don't think any clinical hold necessarily, you know, in this situation like this, would have to be automatically assumed as a negative in the mm-hmm. sense that it is oftentimes a lack of information or information that you have that you have never thought it's important. So you never submitted it, right? Yeah. And then they come back and say, no, it is important for these reasons. And you say, okay. And now then you put together and oftentimes, you know, Every time there is a hole like this, there are procedural elements and the producer line. So you lose time. And um, that to me is probably the one that people should be factoring in. Just because we file an IND doesn't mean you're going to dose on day 29. I think, you know, we should be all paying attention to the, what the agency is giving us in terms of feedback. Because they, they do have access to a lot of products. Yeah. And they may have seen stuff that we may not have seen as an individual company. For example, take the COVID cases how many antibody cocktails the agency would have seen. So they definitely saw things that I have not seen, right? So if they're telling us these are important, which we didn't know, yeah. we absolutely will follow their lead on that. So why wouldn't we? So I think to me, be very open-minded and patient safety comes first. Yeah. And, you know, timelines are timelines. Yeah, of course, you are disappointed when things get delayed, but it's for a good reason. So yes. I All would right. not take it as a negative. Yeah. Last word on the, uh, before I, I want to talk, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the discovery platform. So that's sure. kind of moving backwards a little bit. And then I want to mm-hmm. move forward and talk a little bit about your oncology program before, sure. we, before we wrap up. So uh, last question on the, um, on the, on the COVID antibody would be where, where you go from here. Like what's the next big step in that program? What, what, uh, what's the next big, uh, I guess, milestone that you anticipate? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously we have to see what the phase one results look like and how the pandemic is evolving, right? So COVID is a very dynamic space, as you well know. Mm-hmm. We continue to believe there is going to be opportunity. And this program is currently funded by the government. So I think they're very excited. We are very excited. I think first and foremost, we're a small company. You know, we can only choose so many things to work on. We definitely believe that, you know, we'll continue to look for, you know, uh, the, the next phase for the program, if successful, is a larger phase to study working towards towards the registration. The question for us is, you know, accessing the capital because, you know, if the technology works and the products work, we think there is a lot of opportunity for us to even find a strategic partner, whether it is government or somebody, to continue to work with us. Because the scale at which you need to really be working on the COVID program relative to where we are is quite steep and we can get there. 
but our goal next would be to sort of move the program if successful in phase one into the next phase of development at the same time actively looking for both non-dilutive as well as strategic options because we also have expertise that is would be needed on the commercialization side and the clinical side for a program like this that we don't have currently we are a small early stage biotech company so for those two reasons i think our preference would be to continue to move the program forward ideally in partnership you know currently we are with the government either continue to be with the government or some other strategic partner because there are sort of skill sets that would become important at next stage of development that we currently may or may not have not that we can build it but certainly we would love to you know be partnering with someone who has a a, a set of expertise that uh, we currently uh, do not have having said that if the phase 1 data looks truly compelling and the market and the and the disease continues to be very very uh, daunting that we will be full steam moving this forward because this yeah. cocktail i believe has the potential to to reset this disease so we will make the determination when we get there but currently uh, phase 2 will be the next phase and the question for us is how we get there will depend on the data for the phase 1 sure. study that we have looks like yeah. yeah but we're very excited about the project very good yeah speaking of partnership um so I lied. Maybe that wasn't my last question about your your your, <laughs> your COVID candidate. But I guess this question sort of applies across the board. Uh, are are you, you know, you you sort of downplayed the manufacturing complexity of antibodies. Uh, is that to uh, assume? Should should I assume then that you're you're outsourcing manufacturing of these? Yeah, yep. because it's yeah. So we actually publicly disclosed that um, that we have outsourced our one the CDM that we publicly disclosed of Zena in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the manufacturing partner for the phase one program that we currently are in for the COVID. But beyond that, I think our basic expertise, um, our strength is in the discovery of the targets using yeah. antibodies. But there are plenty of antibody manufacturers. Yeah. So our near term uh, strategy is to continue to outsource uh, manufacturing of the antibodies. Um, again, to the point that you mentioned, because they're standard recombinant manufacturing technologies, they are not other formats, you know, like bispecifics or ADCs. They're straightforward naked IgGs um, yeah. that as plain vanilla as it's going to get. Yeah. So yes, that is the strategy for the near future um, yeah. going forward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, you just said. I mean, the I guess the the bulk or the the, the flashy part of the IP uh, at Immunomedics is. Um, is is or I'm sorry, immunome is uh, is in the discovery platform. So let's talk a little about that just just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to back up and, talk, and and learn more about that. I think you you use the word industrialized. I think like you're in this industrialized approach uh, regarding your discovery platform. What what does that mean? Sort of lay that out for us. Is it uh, yeah. an algorithm? Is it an AI driven platform? How's it, how's yeah. So it? yeah. So let me sort of expand on that a little bit. So. Yeah. Our discovery process starts by obtaining the samples from the patients, right? We get patients samples from their blood, from the draining lymph nodes, and even directly from the tumor tissue. Mm-hmm. And then we take those memory B cells, we have proprietary you know, procedures to expand them, and then use fuse them with a fusion partner to create the hybridoma. Now, these hybridomas live in perpetuity, essentially, and we babysit them one hybridoma at a time in sort of a robotic sense, sense where we take about five to 8,000 hybrid, you know, memory B cells from each patient. Mm-hmm. And each one of these, uh, you know, hybridomas that are actually making one antibody and one antibody only. 
And when we take this antibody and say, hey, is this antibody any important? Then we multiplex those antibodies against the screening cascade where we can screen 20,000 antibodies on a single glass side, 5,000 in quadruplicate against authentic uh, tumor uh, antigen sets. These are like biopsy materials, PDX models. The idea is that is this antibody binding to any authentic cancer tissues? In other words, is this antibody even directed against the cancer? If so, against what cancer? What specific type of cancer? So this cascade is again proprietary to us. We are doing 20,000 experiments on a glass side at a time, okay, in a very rapid fashion. If you think about 3D printing and or uh, other similar technologies where we're generating a lot of information where we get more than a million data points from each patient. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. in terms of the repertoire of the B-cell repertoire and what the B-cells are really making the antibodies. Then we handpick literally using the algorithms that you talked about, very highly uh, selective antibodies that are binding with very high affinity. And then we come back and pick up those hits. And then we say, at this point, we know it is an interesting hit, but we don't know what it is hitting. Okay. Then we come back and put the 80% of the human proteome on a chip again, and go back with the antibody and specifically isolate which target is it really hitting. So yeah. the output is an antibody antigen pair. To get you an idea about the scale right now, we have processed to date over a quarter million hybridomas. Okay? Yeah. And after that, we have about 1,400 hits. These are antibodies that are really hitting something that belongs to cancer, let us say. We only could process a handful of them so far, like couple of hundred of those, and we already have 70 novel antibody antigen pairs, meaning 70 novel targets. What I mean by novel is that they don't appear on the pipeline of any of the known pharma companies. Okay, mm -hmm. They're truly novel, meaning that they're antibodies directed at targets that are relevant in cancer, but others are not studying. That's why I'm very excited about this because many of the targets we are identifying, I call them as dark targets meaning these are the targets that the B cells are looking as targets, but we, based on our understanding of cancer biology, have not thought about them as targets, right? Yeah. That is the beauty because we are, we are identifying now areas of biology that were never classically thought of as cancer biology. So when I came to Immunome, again, I'm a platform guy, right? So my vision of Immunome is that we are going to have targets that are dotted across the entire landscape of cancer biology, almost like a T-Mobile map of the whole country, right? <laughs> then good. my concern was how the hell am I going to prioritize any of them? What was shocking to me is that only a few states seem to light up, mm. okay? So B cells coming from different patients with different cancers at different stages of response are all going after select processes that are happening in the body. Why is that? That is a complete revelation to me because I didn't expect that. None of us as a matter of fact expected it. What that is suggesting is that the memory B cells or the B cells in general are picking certain parts of the cancer growth and are truly focused on that as a way of fighting back. Mm -hmm. That knowledge is not known. So we're able to identify now areas in biology we believe based on this information, the immune system is telling us that's where you want to go because yeah. that's where the immune system is going to fight back. That to me is probably the biggest draw to come to immunome. Yeah. That's what drew me here and say, okay, there is something here. 
I mean, it's, uh, it is, it, it's fascinating. I, I, I consider, like, I, I think about, you know, you said you're a platform guy. Was this <laughs> platform as we know it now, like as, as you're defining it, is a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, take yourself back to 1993, right? When I think around that time frame is when you got out of mm-hmm. out of uh, your, your, client, your, yeah. your, your PhD program and you went to work yeah. at Smith mm-hmm. GSK, yeah, yeah, Smith Beach, yeah, pressure. Yeah, so back then, this notion of being able to screen the way that we do now, you know, tech enabled. I mean, it wasn't even uh, it wasn't even on the radar, obviously. Uh, when the Human Genome Project started, roughly at that time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I guess at what point? Uh, I'm I'm just curious, you know, from a personal standpoint, at what point in the continuum of your career did you sort of see uh, tech-enabled discovery mm-hmm. blossoming and realize, you know what? Uh, Pernan, I better embrace this. I better like I, I better put, wrap my arms around it. So interestingly, actually, from my perspective, I first got into tech-enabled development, mm-hmm. then into tech-enabled research, because my first uh, foray into that is a company called ne- Inhale Therapeutic Systems, or Nectar, Nectar where right. we were trying to engineer particles to achieve certain things. So we had to engineer insulin to be delivered through the lung mm-hmm. instead of taking it as an injection. So the platform there is, we used to call ourselves particles or us. I mean, we could make any kind of particle, okay? Some of them are aerosols. Some of them are, you know, they can go through the skin. So we were really using particle engineering and device engineering to very accurately deliver drugs to where they needed to go. Okay, mm-hmm. So that was a platform from a particle delivery standpoint. Then we got into molecular engineering through pegylation technology that we acquired shear water polymers where you can make the antibodies hang around for a much longer period of time. I'm sure you know about things like Neulasta, Pegasus, Pegintron. All of them are pegylated proteins to increase the half-life. Was something that again Nectar pioneered. It was molecular engineering. So my entry into platform was, you know, particle engineering, molecular engineering. When you have these things, uh, you know, coming together, the goal there, however, was to make a therapeutic work better. One of the products that I think I did the very first work that got commercialized is inhaled tobramycin for cystic fibrosis. It's yeah. uh, sold as tobipod inhaler. The concept there was. With the conventional technologies, we could not deliver hundreds of milligrams of antibiotic into the lung, because that's what it took. But our technology, our technology had the ability to deliver large quantities of powders without patient coughing and gagging. Mm-hmm. Right? We they're like little balloons that just you know slowly fly over and make the ninety degree turn that you need to make at the trachea to get in. Yeah. So we could deliver hundreds of milligrams in a single dose so the kids don't have to stick to a nebulizer and an electrical outlet. They can take a small inhaler in their backpack and go to school, right? So those that's how the engineering made drug discovery, drug development suitable for me. So that's how I got into platforms. Then it is transmucosal delivery of fentanyl or whether it is transdermal delivery. Then I think when I got that piece, then, then the, the discovery part then became much, much easier because... The, I could see this approach coming from the end of the game, which is delivering it to the patient, then applying the same engineering skills right now onto the discovery side actually became much easier because you can make them more streamlined. If you get this in discovery, it should mean something for development. 
Sure. There was a thought process at some point. People say, can you engineer everything into the molecule? So when it comes out, it has all the right properties. It knows where to go. That was a little bit of too much of an ask. Okay. Mm -hmm. At some point, you have to combine technologies to get to where you so, so I think to me, it started way back in like 95 or 96, but it started with the technologies enabling development first, broadly across multiple therapies. If you look at phagylated proteins, there are so many therapeutics that are phagylated, right? One platform could enable so many products. That's where I would say mid nineties is, is when it became very, very apparent that we need to start thinking about platforms. And I think going forward, I can guarantee you, even in the context of infectious disease, I don't think we have enough time to react to the next pandemic. Yeah. Even 18 months is too long, okay? So only platforms I think can enable today, if you look at even the government initiatives, some of them are coming out of the Department of Defense and others says, how can we learn from what we already have to be ready for the next pandemic and yeah. can react in like weeks? Okay. Yep. We don't have 18 months. I think that's where platforms are going to go. Yeah. I think that's where they need to go. Uh, yeah. It's a rapid response is very, very important. The only way I think you can do it is using a platform. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of uh, the discovery platform, we're, we're running short on time here. And I, I do want to talk uh, briefly about your oncology program. How's the, how's the platform and I guess the experience with uh, the progression of the, of the COVID candidate informing what's going on on the oncology side? To some extent, they're similar, and in, in another way, they're completely different. And um, what I mean by that is, on the on the virus, you know, for all the havoc that it is causing, it's a very simple protein. I mean, it's a very simple virus. So there are only like thirteen or fourteen targets on the COVID. So it's not that hard to to figure out antibodies against that. Cancer yeah. is a monster, right? It has so many variations. Every patient has their own cancer. So I think the fundamental difference comes in is the identification of the target becomes much, much, much more complex in cancer compared to SARS-CoV-2, which is a pretty you know, simple thing at some level to from a target standpoint. So I think in oncology, I think where we are really shining is this unbiased nature, rather than having a preconceived notion that a certain target is important by truly being unbiased, let the immune system drive us is getting us to some very interesting targets. The first one being our lead program, IL-38, uh, as a target, is pretty fascinating because as a molecule, people knew about IL-38 okay, in inflammation and in psoriasis. No one knew it's a cancer target until we came. And when we came in, we saw these antibodies against IL-38 in cancer patients. So what the hell is this IL-38 antibody doing here? As we dug in, we found out how profound it is on the innate side of the immune system in silencing. Uh, the early stages of immune response. Since our uh, IL-38 work started, now several publications are now coming out, highlighting its importance in lung cancer, for example, coming out of independent groups. So I think what we have proven in case of IL-38, at least on the discovery side so far, is that there are molecules and targets that are right in front of us, but we just have no idea how they're relevant in cancer those are the lowest hanging fruit. I think we are finding stuff that have significant involvement in cancer as a first program at World Depot The second part of it is the biology that we talked about. Like there are areas of cancer biology. One example I'll give you is, everybody knows about these packets called exosomes. These are small packets that the tumor and even normal cells secrete in the body to carry a function. What we are finding is that 
the B cells are fighting back against the formation and function of exosomes. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, what we believe is happening is the tumor is packing all the silencing mechanisms into the exosomes and then distributing the exosomes into the microenvironment to actually control the microenvironment. And the human immune system is fighting back. So we have multiple targets, for example, in a cluster like that, where I think we have a significant advantage, we believe, in identifying novel targets that others have not been able to identify. So I'm very excited about our oncology pipeline. The first program is going to be filing an IND in the second half of this year. We are on track to do that, very excited. We believe it is a legitimate checkpoint on the innate immune system side, just like the pdl ones on the adaptive side, but the pipeline is very rich. Uh, not only you know, novel antibodies that are unaltered, but also antibody drug conjugates. We have some really interesting antibodies that seem to hit targets on cancer very specifically without hitting the normal cells. So there's a lot more to come on, on um, antibodies and uh, cancer. Clearly, we're a small company. One of the things is that we can only work on so many. So I also see a significant exciting opportunity on the partnership side because mm -hmm. we truly are a discovery engine. And I don't think we can act on all of them, but we'll find a way to move them all, uh, either with ourselves or through partnerships. So yep. that's the exciting phase for us in the in the coming years. Yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly is exciting. And I, and you 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 mentioned the coming years. That's a. I, I was going to mention that I hope your colleagues at Immunome uh, like you because you you it looks as though you like to stick around for I don't know close to a decade a de maybe around a decade your sweet spot at each company. Yeah, you yeah, 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 yeah. I think. So. You're yeah, at Nectar for 10 years, you're at yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this, yeah, this is not an IT company where you make an app and move away, right? I mean, this is drugs. They take a long time to develop. They're capital intensive, they're resource intensive. And you need resilience. You know, you're going to see more failures than successes. And that's the nature of our industry. And unless you are terribly lucky and extremely, you know, good, it's very rare that you can, you know, come in and make something happen in a year or two. It's just not in our time sure. frame. We, we need to stick around for we need to have that long-term horizon to be successful in this. I mean, you know this very well, I don't know how to tell you. But I'm not one of those people who jump around a lot. When I come in, I, I try to stick. And yeah. That's what it takes. <laughs> yeah, I, well, you, you know, it, it's uh, it's proven a successful approach to date in your career. And, uh, Thank you. We, yeah, we wish you the same success with Immunome. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pay attention. We'll be along for the ride. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to regroup uh, a little bit down the road when you've got some more to report on. Yeah, absolutely. Truly appreciate the time, Matt. It's been wonderful talking to you, and then I hope to stay in touch. I'll keep you posted, obviously. Oh, for sure. Progress. Yeah, well, thank, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. All right. It. Thank you very much. Bye. So that's Immunome President and CEO, Dr. Pranan Sarma. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online, which I invite you to visit at bioprocessonline.com, where you're welcome to subscribe to my newsletter. We're graciously supported by Cytiva, which demonstrates its commitment to new and emerging biopharma at its biotech accelerator, which you can find at citiva.com backslash emerging biotech. If you like what you're hearing here on the business of biotech, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, share us with your colleagues, and thanks for listening.